This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx by Sven Eric Liedman and translated by Jeffrey N. Skinner. In this essential new biography, the first to give equal weight to both the work and life of Karl Marx, Sven Erik Liedman expertly navigates the imposing, complex personality of his subject through the turbulent passages of global history. A World to Win follows Marx through childhood and student days, a difficult and sometimes tragic family life, his far-sighted journalism, and his enduring friendship and intellectual partnership with Friedrich Engels. Building on the work of previous biographers, Liedman employs a commanding knowledge of the 19th century to create a definitive portrait of Marx and his vast contribution to the way the world understands itself. He shines a light on Marx's influences, explains his political and intellectual interventions, and builds on the legacy of his thought. Liedman shows how Marx's masterpiece, Capital, illuminates the essential logic of a system that drives dizzying wealth, grinding poverty, and awesome technological innovation to this day. A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx, by Sven Erik Liedman, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The U.S. colony of Puerto Rico has been repeatedly shocked. In 2006, tax breaks to lure manufacturers to the island expired, prompting widespread capital flight. Then the financial crisis hit, and the island's government borrowed huge sums of money. The resulting debt crisis was met with widespread public sector layoffs. Then the federal promesa law created the Unelected Financial Oversight and Management Board, or Junta, which is moving to impose yet more austerity on the island. And then Maria. There have already been widespread school closures, and huge numbers of people had left the island even before the storm hit. Puerto Ricans are profoundly traumatized which is precisely what successful shock doctrines like this one, which endeavors to remake the island into a utopia for rich Americans and crypto bros and a dystopia for everyone else, depend upon. This is also what Naomi Klein's new book from Haymarket is all about. It's called The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico Takes on the Disaster Capitalists. Today, Klein is my guest, along with Mercedes Martinez, the president of the Puerto Rican Teachers Federation. Before we get started, this show is only possible thanks to listener support, meaning listeners like you, at patreon.com slash the dig. If you listen to the show and appreciate what we do, and if you want access to our excellent weekly newsletter, and to get some left-wing books mailed to you, please take a moment to make a donation at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, it's important to note that all royalties from the Battle for Paradise go to the Puerto Rican organizing group Junte Gente, or People Unite. So there you go. It's an excellent and extraordinarily important book, and you should buy it. Okay, here's Naomi Klein and Mercedes Martinez. 
Naomi Klein and Mercedes Martinez, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be with you again. This book is in in many ways a sequel to the the shock doctrine because unfortunately post-Katrina New Orleans has become a model for how elites can exploit climate crisis to impose unpopular policies that dispossess poor and working class people for the benefit of the rich. Naomi and Mercedes, what is happening in Puerto Rico right now in the wake of Hurricane Maria? Well, I think Mercedes is way better equipped to answer that than me because she's there and on the front lines. Puerto Rico is still devastated after Hurricane Maria. Actually, Hurricane Maria was just, it just uncovered what was been happening in Puerto Rico for decades since we've been a U.S. colony and a Spain colony as well. But directly impacted after this hurricane, we have now that the fiscal board is imposing severe austerity measures against the working class, against our children. Yesterday was the last day of the semester and 265 schools set to shut down permanently, affecting and impacting 55,000 students. 84, 84% of the schools that are set to be shut down are located in rural areas, uh, extreme poverty, people with no transportation. We still have Yabucoa residents with 60% of no electricity. We have people that are still dying every day in our country as the Harvard study is posed because of the negligence of the government on attending the energy problem that we have here. And the workers have proposed to change to a sustainable, renewable, green energy, but the government just keeps pushing. So it's very hard. Law 80 is going to be abolished. It's a law that can defend private working employees from unjustified layoffs and they get just compensation. So they're going to eliminate it. They are proposing to lower the minimum wage for our youth, 25 years and under. They are proposing to increase the tuition fees for the University of Puerto Rico and shut down different campuses. So is disaster capitalism on steroids while we're living here in Puerto Rico right now? Naomi, do you want to add anything to that? What I would add to that, and you know, also just acknowledge, <laughs> just that 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 nobody has been doing more to stop this than Mercedes Martinez, and it's it's just such an honor to 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 be talking with you, Mercedes, and and to have met you when 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 I was there reporting, because the education system really has been um, on the front lines of this of this brutal austerity, and you know, we're talking a week after the um, study, the Harvard study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that estimated that the death toll in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, um, the sort of excess deaths, as they call it, um, was around 5,000 people as of the end of December. Um, And they noted that uh, there was no sign that the numbers were going down. So I think that what we're seeing in, in many ways in Puerto Rico is this, you know, as, as Mercedes said, it's like, it's just this intensification of a system that we have seen elsewhere. But there are some times when a particular 
place in a particular kind in a particular time, you know, holds up a mirror to the brutalities of, the, of our system, right? And and the, and Puerto Rico is that place right now. The the these so-called excess deaths, they were happening before Maria as a result of public policy. And if you look at that Harvard study, what's very clear is that it was not a natural disaster that caused those deaths. The 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 the, the deaths. You know, because of high winds, be, you know, because of you know falling debris, you know, those those were rel- the, the numbers for that were relatively small. The huge numbers of deaths were the result of infrastructure collapse. So they, they were the result of lack of access to medical care, which is tied to the complete breakdown of the electricity system and the water system. And this has everything to do with the fact that um, before Maria hit. Puerto Rico was experiencing a very high dose of what I've called the shock doctrine in the past of using a, a crisis. It, before Maria, it was an economic crisis, a debt crisis, to impose one of the most brutal austerity regimes in the world. And we see the death toll from that um, because the, the, the systematic starving of the public sphere is the reason why um, the infrastructure collapsed as spectacularly as it did, um, but you know, in it, but but now even seeing that, rather than uh, pulling back in any way, there is this intensification of that very program, a doubling down. Uh, so it's it's quite extraordinary what's happening in, in, in Puerto Rico. And Mercedes, before we get any further, I'd like you to explain the the entity that's imposing this. Uh, austerity and these shocks on on Puerto Rico, the Financial Oversight and Management Board, what Islanders call La Junta. What is it? How did it come about? Who sits on it? And what is it trying to do? La Junta, or the Oversight Control Fiscal Board, is a dictatorship. It was appointed by the U.S. Congress while President Barack Obama's presidency Barack Obama signed, uh, approved the law PROMESA, and with that law, that supposedly is going to, it was it was um, written to make ways to have the Puerto Rican people pay an odious debt of $72 billion. They created this fiscal board, just as they did in Detroit, and the fiscal board is supposed to implement severe austerity measures against the people of Puerto Rico so we can repay a debt that has not been audited, that we are requesting for the debt to be audited, and there's an alliance of organizations that have organized and that are ready to audit the debt, but they do not want to do it because it will uncover and unveil all the bondholders or the rich people that are involved in this. The Junta or the Oversight Fiscal Board is composed by seven members, non-elected officials who can overrule our laws, our budget, who submit the fiscal plans, who approve anything that happens in our country. So that is not democracy. That is a dictatorship of seven non-affected, non-elected officials that are governing our country. They are not here to put behind bars all the corrupt politicians or the bondholders, the people that are indebted, uh, the Puerto Rican people, the, is very 
I'm curious to see that two of the members of the Oversight Fiscal Board, Carlo Garcia, and I forgot the other one's names right now, were pretty much involved on the bonds that were taken on behalf of Puerto Ricans people when they worked on the Santander Bank and the BGF Bank, which is the bank of the government of Puerto Rico, of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. And they are very much um, into the problem. They are part of the problem. They were there and they are responsible for the bonds, the, for the mission of these bonds that were taken on behalf of our people. And they are there, you know, like playing, we say here, playing pitcher and catcher on um, both bases. They created the debt and we have to pay for it and they get benefit from the from the debt. So the fiscal board, just in one word, as I said, is a dictatorship of seven members that are ruining our lives and are pretending to leave Puerto Ricans in extreme poverty. The good thing, because I want Naomi to talk about this, is that Puerto Ricans are resilient We've seen this in so many marches, rallies, protests, groups that have been organizing together, environmentalists, feminists, um, union members, housewives, everybody in Puerto Rico is fighting back and is joining together. And we are making alliances because we are not accepting these precarious conditions to pay a debt that does not has not been um, created by the working class. So the ruling class and that 1% that want that money that has been overpaid and has been paid for already um, are not going to ruin our lives. So we are definitely um, fighting back against this. And I think the other thing that needs to be clarified too is um, it's not, you know, the, the rhetoric is about paying back the debt, right? But everybody knows the debt is not going to be paid back. The debt is un unpayable, right? So Puerto Rico is, is being structurally adjusted through the use of debt. Um, and Daniel, of course, you're very familiar with this from from your journalism journalism work in in Latin America. Um, you know, so, some of the, the 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 debt may be repaid, but what but what is happening now is the debt is being used as an economic weapon to force privatization and um, other uh, profitable so-called reforms. Right. Um, so it becomes the weapon that is used. Uh, to demand the privatization of the electricity system, uh, which carry itself carries a huge debt, but is very profitable, a very profitable asset. So clearly, what's going to happen is the profitable parts of the uh, of the public utility will be auctioned off to private players, while the debt will be offloaded uh, onto the public. Um, and what what Mercedes has been fighting is a similar process in the school system, cracking open the education system to charter schools, which um, Puerto Rico's uh, teachers and parents have successfully fought, unlike in many states, uh, for many years. But now uh, there's a new law that 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 would um, would crack open the education system to for-profit schools. This education secretary, Julia Kelleher, um, said that New Orleans should be a quote point of reference for the island. She has been here for such a short time and, and created so much damage. She needs to get lost and she needs to leave our island immediately. Um, she's just a empresaria. She's a businesswoman. She came here and she's getting paid by a new um, government um, wing that, that's called AFAF, which responds directly to the Oversight Control Fiscal Board. 
and she acknowledges this and she's coming here as a mere puppet of the oversight fiscal board to perform these atrocities against uh, Puerto Rican children. She's earning a quarter of a million dollars in salary, um, better paid than any secretary in our history in Puerto Rico as Higgins in the energy, energy um, agency corporation is making almost um, $500,000, Natalie Yaresco, which is the director executive, the executive director from the fiscal board is making $625,000 a year. And they all have approved their own 80, their own law 80, which is the law that they want to abolish where you get just compensation if you get fired for not finishing your contract for unjust layoffs. And these people created an, their own law 80. So even if they get laid off or even if their contract is expired, they get to collect all their money. So they're here, very attached to the fiscal board to create, that has created um, or abroad, it has expanded the crisis to implement these plans. And they have been repudiated by the people of Puerto Rico and they have been asked to leave our country and they have been asked to leave their positions. They are damaging the children of Puerto Rico. Right now, as we speak, we have parents occupying the schools um, making sure that no one takes anything from it, that no materials go out, that nothing comes out so they can save it. We are suing the government next week, and we have a lot of schools in that in that lawsuit that we're gonna um, we're going to practice against them, and we are expecting the 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 courts to favor us in behalf of the children of Puerto Rico because Julia Keller, she has a a company called Kelleher and Associates based on Philadelphia. She came here more than four years ago and she's making millions of dollars of the of the tax uh, that we pay here to make the conditions of privatization possible to lay off thousands of teachers to save hundreds of millions of dollars as the fiscal plan pretends and has been proposed at at the expense of her having her rich life without caring about the necessities, the human necessities of the children of Puerto Rico and the needs of the teachers of Puerto Rico. You know, and I think that's the, the, what, what Mercedes is describing is, you know, a microcosm of this broader extractive mentality that is really the economic history of Puerto Rico, right? Of, of treating the islands as... Um, you know, just a place from which to extract wealth and labor uh, for the mainland. And, it, you know, for me, you know, what Mercedes is describing, it's just so harrowing, right? Because we hear all this rhetoric of humanitarian aid, you know, and recovery going to, to Puerto Rico. But this is child abuse. And you, you hear these, these, these figures, you know, closing 300 schools, and, it, you know, it can seem abstract. But these are children who have lived through a profoundly traumatic event. Hurricane Maria was a massive trauma for everybody in Puerto Rico. And, you know, we're talking about children who lost their homes, who lost family members, um, who, you know, had this experience of, of, of you know, it seeming that the, the, the natural world had turned against them. And everybody who has worked with children is a parent um, knows that what children need in a situation like this more than anything is 
a return to some kind of normalcy, um, of some kind of routine, to have a space of safety, to process their experiences. Um, and that's what school can and should be in a moment like this. So this is a process of just incredibly heartless re-traumatization um, of children and families in Puerto Rico. And there is a human element to this that, you know, we have to, that, that we have to continuously remember. Yes, and I wanted to add before you did your next question that immediately, immediately after the hurricane occurred in Puerto Rico, a week after teachers went there, and if the schools are open, it's thanks to the work of the teachers that reconditioned the schools, machete on hand, chase on, on hand, and reconditioned, put the roofs back on the schools. And it was horrendous to see that this woman, we made a, a letter to her asking her, open at least the lunchroom because children have no electricity, children have no water in their houses. You have gas stoves and you have food there that you can feed the entire community. Open them up and we will cook. She denied that. So a lot of, of parents occupied even the lunchrooms after the hurricane to be able to feed the children and all the community members. Then as two weeks passed, the schools were open, were ready to be open in the majority of the cases, thanks to the work of the people, because only the people will save the people. The government did not appear, not federal, not state. And she denied to open the schools. So we had to organize the communities. She said the New Orleans um, quote that you stated, and she tried to implement it. She shut down 50 schools. Communities had to organize with the Federation, occupy the schools, make uh, media present, and we were able to revoke the school closings. And she tried to shut down immediately 184 schools. There's a, a news report on that after the hurricane because she wanted to take advantage of the vulnerability of the people, but people were resilient and people fought back and she was not able to, to close the schools, to privatize the schools after the hurricane. So now the, you know, capitalist never sleeps. She's trying again and she's determined to shut down these schools, but we are definitely still fighting back. I mean, the other thing, and, and I, I, I interviewed Mercedes when I was in Puerto Rico, and, 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 and she made such a good point, right, which is the pretext for why these school closures are happening is that um, there aren't enough students to justify it, right? But if you look at the numbers, the, the student-teacher ratio is actually where it should be. Right, there were the, the student-teacher ratio was way out of whack. There were um, before because the schools were so underfunded. But this sort of crisis that they're trying to fix is actually a healthy student-teacher ratio, which apparently yeah. the students of Puerto Rico don't don't deserve. Governor Ricardo Rosello um, said that Maria had turned the island into a quote blank canvas, and business and political elites have these designs on education like we've been discussing, but it's it's a it's a bigger picture for the whole island. Uh, Naomi, you write that Naomi, you write that it's a a, a vision of Puertopia using huge tax tax breaks to lure rich transplants, including cryptocurrency bros, to the island. There's a four percent corporate tax rate. Dividends from island based companies to island based individuals are tax free, no federal income tax. And to benefit from these tax subsidies, these rich transplants just have to spend 183 days of the year on the island, which, as you point out, Naomi, is perfect for rich people who'd like to spend their winters somewhere warm. Tell me a little bit about this development scheme, 
that the Puerto Rican government and business elites are pushing, including this bizarre crypto invasion? I mean, it really is just a scheme. Uh, It's really just about trying to have some kind of economic activity on the books. Um, I mean, the irony is that the the this most recent economic crisis in Puerto Rico um, was catalyzed by the expiration of tax breaks that used to be offered to American companies to encourage them to build factories in Puerto Rico and create very large numbers of jobs. Um, Puerto Rico really was the laboratory for the export processing zone free trade model that swept the world. Um, And and the reason for this is because because Puerto Rico is an American territory, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you had this um, economic project uh, uh, called Operation Bootstraps to give American companies these tax breaks so that they would go to Puerto Rico, build their factories, and, and they were they were they were sort of proto maquiladoras, the kind of, of of low wage factories that eventually moved to Mexico and 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 uh, and and Central America and 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 then Asia. Um, but you didn't need free trade deals to do this in Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. So you could it would still was technically made in America, right? But what really started to devastate Puerto Rico's economy was when. Um, NAFTA was signed, and there was even lower wages. There were even lower wages on offer, and 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 weaker regulations on offer. Um, and so the and so those tax breaks were allowed to expire because they were no longer needed. So the whole model was replaced by the free trade model, and the the end date for the expiration was 2006. And so that's really kind of the beginning of the. the that was like the economic shock that catalyzed the debt crisis. Okay, um, and. And, and so the significance is that at least those tax breaks um, required that these companies create jobs and, and build real factories. Now what they have are these laws that, um, that allow American companies to change their addresses to Puerto Rico. But we're talking here about financial companies, tech companies, increasingly cryptocurrency-related companies. Um, that uh, that you know they're not building factories and, and and employing huge numbers of Puerto Ricans. There used to be a requirement that they create four jobs, and um, a couple of years ago they got, or, or even just a year ago, they got rid of even that requirement. So you don't even have to hire a Puerto Rican gardener if you don't want to to benefit from this buffet of tax giveaways. No capital gains tax, no interest uh, ta- tax on interest. Um, I mean, so if you are a, a crypto trader. And you want to cash out. You want to sell your Bitcoin and turn it into, you know, hard U.S. currency. Then what you're most afraid of is getting taxed on that, right? Um, and so what Puerto Rico is offering to those crypto bros is come here, do your trading, and you won't get taxed at all. Um, and uh, and and the corporate tax rate, as you mentioned, is four percent. And you think about that in the context of of Trump's tax cut, which lowered the corporate tax rate in the U.S. mainland to 20%, right, which was already a significant cut. And this is what Puerto Rico is offering. So you can imagine why it is such an appealing offer. Um, But like I said, you know, it's a scheme because it is, uh, you know, there's just so little job creation that that is connected to it. Mercedes? They are making earnings, about $35 billion tax-free money on earnings that are leaving our country because of this corporation's 
and their tax breaks. $35 billion per year. No taxing in Puerto Rico. And you are having, this is a fiscal paradise. The way to put it, this is a fiscal paradise for kids, corporations, for anybody that wants to make money. Puerto Rico is the place for profit for them. While they don't contribute to our economy and they take all their earnings and their winnings, Puerto Rican people keep suffering because of that. So mm-hmm. we propose to the government in a public hearing one because we object, but we propose we propose a, a project to be presented on our behalf of the Teachers Federation to tax the rich. And we propose different taxes on a lot of things on our island, including the corporate tax. And we proposed to raise it, but legislature didn't pass the bill that we submitted to be presented as a people's bill in not in the House of Representatives and now in the Senate. So we were not successful on making the government apply that bill that we wanted to be complied that would end this fiscal paradise in, in Puerto Rico, in our country. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to lessons from the teachers' revolt, featuring voices from the front lines of the strikes. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Workers, and by Jacobin, and will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current teachers' rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great space to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. Mercedes, one, one key aspect of this dystopian model for the island's future is depopulation, which has been taking place for many, many years, but has rapidly accelerated in Maria's wake. And it's it's a process that, if not intentional, is at least seemingly pretty welcome to those pushing to implement this Puertopia vision on the island. Can you tell me about the flight of people from the island and the impact that it's had? Well, hundreds of thousands of people have already left the island. There's a study that's showing that 6% of the people that left are coming back to our country. It's not easy to go to a different country, different lifestyle. So a lot of people are, and they have attachments. This is their home. The family's here. A lot of them left because of their necessity. They had no electricity. They needed to 
they need the energy for our respirator. So now they're coming back, but it's obvious that they want to depopulate our country and they're doing this great plan to, to comply it. If you close a school in a rural area, which is the only school like the one we have in Benuelas in Barrio Real, to give you an example, and the closest school is 14 kilometers away and people have no cars, you are making them leave the mountains and you're making them leave our country. So if you have no jobs, if you create no jobs, the governor of Puerto Rico said last year that he was going to do a labor reform, which is you know eliminating the rights of the people. That's what they call labor reform that will generate jobs. Well, last year itself, more than 45,000 um, jobs on the private sector were lost in our country. So if you have no jobs, right now they are imposing or they are trying to be able to go on incentivated uh, retirement. That's what they call it, it's just to quit your job. They pay you for a year, but then for five years, you can't work on any government agency. Private sector is not offering any jobs. Where are the people gonna go after the year? So obviously they're pushing people out of, their con of our country to make the rich and wealthy come here and create their own towns, their own cities, their own Puerto Rico. Uh, there's a, I was reading an article of a specific place in Puerto Rico, I think it was Seiva, where the base was at, where they're coming here trying to buy the land and have their own private hospitals, their private schools, their private land, their private everything. Uh, and and their private disaster relief, you know, like wow. this is increasingly a trend for the, you know, so-called high net worth individuals as the Puerto Rican government likes to refer to them um, to, to, you know, make sure that they've got, you know, they, that they've got all the backup generators, all the medicine, all the, you know, the, the rebuilding that they're doing is, you know, to the highest, you know, hurricane proof grade. I mean, it's, it is dystopian, Daniel. It, 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 and it, 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 it's almost like a, almost, it's, it's so, it's almost like a sci-fi cliche, right? What's yeah. playing out in Puerto Rico where you have the super rich, you know, taking advantage of this massive rolling humanitarian disaster to come in and go like, oh yeah, I see a blank slate here. Um, this is a, this is a great place for us to to build our 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 you know private fortress, climate change proof little little enclave, um, and it, and it's quite chilling. And I mean, the worst part about the crypto bros is that they wrap it in some kind of you know, very thin veneer of humanitarian um, noblesse oblige. Like they, you know, we're and like I'm new age from, bullshit. <laughs> huge amount of new age bullshit. You know, we're, I'm Bitcoin and I'm here to help. It, you, you call them the um, the slacker cousin of the seasteaders, and one of the movement's leaders is this guy Brock Pierce, who was a child actor in Mighty Ducks and other films, who says things like, "A billionaire is a person who has positively impacted the lives of a billion people." You know, but the truth is that their whole industry is spun on bullshit. You know, um, they're they're convinced there, there's nothing that they can't talk their way into. <laughs> One uh, really key piece of this book, it's not just about the the disaster that the elites are trying to take advantage of and exploit to impose on the people of Puerto Rico, but it's, you know, the storm's devastation highlighted the dangers posed by the current political economic order, but it also highlighted all these possible alternatives that had previously been hiding in plain sight. And Naomi, you, you write about two such alternatives, Casa Pueblo, which is a, a solar-powered community center of sorts and a small educational farm. 
Can you tell me about what you learned from these models and what you saw there in the wake of the storm? Well, in both cases, and, you know, I've been writing about climate change and, and you know, adaptation as, you know, the jargon, the jargon term for, you know, how we are going to adapt ourselves to the reality that the future is filled with shocks. The future is rocky. I mean, we've warmed the planet enough that no matter what we do now, um, these types of megastorms are the new normal. Um, and, you know, other forms of extreme, extreme climate events, right? Uh, and what what was really um, moving to see in Puerto Rico is that many of the solutions the, the 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 responses to climate change that have been held up by the grassroots um, were really tested in in the teeth of the storm and emerged as you know the most credible climate responses. So you know one example of this is um, community owned and controlled microgrids, solar solar microgrids. Um, you know this is a model that a lot of progressives have put forward as as something that we should be adopting on a, on a large scale, right? Um, rather than having, um, you know, huge solar and wind farms controlled by a handful of companies to replace fossil fuels, as we transition to renewable energy, we should have energy democracy. We should democratize the ownership of the energy system. And, um, and, and what we see in Puerto Rico is that the people who were ahead of the curve and already adopting this model were some of the only people with power on the island um, because their solar panels survived. Um, they weren't dependent on the grid that was totally knocked out, so they had power. Um, and you know, I tell the story of, of a community center um, called Casa Puebla that uh, it was in this pink house in the mountains of Ajuntas, and they, um, you know, there was a sea of darkness, and their pink house was glowing, and it became this beacon for everybody to come from miles around to plug in their. Uh, oxygen machines became a kind of field hospital. They were handing out tens of thousands of uh, solar lanterns as well. And since the storm, they have spearheaded uh, a, a, this call to um, for, for a rapid transition to to microgrids uh, through solar energy. Um, so breaking this dependency model, because as a colony, Puerto Rico was built to be dependent on American imports, including the imports of fossil fuel, even though. Puerto Rico has like the best conditions for renewable energy. You, you write that 90, 98% of the island's electricity comes from fossil fuels, all of which is imported. So there's been oh, all yeah. this reporting on PREPA, the Puerto Rican Electric Power Authorities, that it, it's decrepit state. But but most reporting hasn't taken much of a look at this fundamental weakness that you, that you write about baked into the very design of this highly centralized, highly undemocratic design of the system. Right. And, you know, this is um, I, I, I sp- spent some time in Puerto Rico traveling with Elizabeth Yampierre, who's the executive director of Uprose. And she and I wrote a, you know, a piece together um, before the storm for The Intercept about the a just recovery. Um, I think the headline was Imagine a, a, a Puerto Rican Recovery Designed by Puerto Ricans. Um, based on these sorts of models that were in place uh, before the storm, but then you know people came with renewed conviction after the storm because they had proof of concept um, in the the way these models survived the storm. Uh, and you know one of the things Elizabeth talks about is that Puerto Rico could actually be a model 
for how climate vulnerable uh, uh, islands can can survive a future of climate change. And another example is is has to do with food sovereignty and the food movement in Puerto Rico, which is very strong and cutting edge. And I write about uh, Organización Boricua de Agricultura Ecológica, um, which is a network of traditional farmers in, in uh, Puerto Rico who have been not listening to the advice of uh, the Department of Agriculture for a very long time, not adopting the monocrop model, which was wiped out in the storm. So if the only thing you planted were bananas, then um, your entire crop was wiped out. And this was true for all of industrial agriculture in Puerto Rico after Maria. And that's what I thought before I went. But then when I went and you know actually saw it for myself, what I learned was that the, the, the traditional Puerto Rican farmers who hadn't listened to the advice to plant monocrops, um, but who had uh, insisted on protecting traditional methods of um, intercropping, of planting multiple crops, of keeping trees to prevent uh, the soil erosion, um, and planting root vegetables, um, which are a staple of the Puerto Rican diet, they had food. Because if you think about it, you know, what destroys crops are the high winds in a hurricane, right? But if you, but, but everything that's underground has a natural bunker, right? The soil itself, it's growing underground. And so these crops um, actually survived. So this was some of the only um, healthy food on the island after Maria, because it took, you know, FEMA weeks to finally show up with Cheez-Its and Skittles in many communities. Regarding to the school system, we have 1,100 schools. Only 44 schools have agriculture programs. And we went to public hearings with farmers that work in our schools, submitting a proposal for every school in Puerto Rico to have that program because of the full sovereignty issue long way before the hurricane. We presented um, teachers that have doctorates that studied this in Mayagüez in the University of Puerto Rico, they presented an entire bill to be submitted and approved, but this legislature just denies and denies everything that's good for people. But, but besides that, the teachers, we have a lot of teachers like Stephanie Rodriguez in Morovis. She has a green program of agriculture in her school and she is always farming. And after the hurricane, it happened, what just Naomi said, but she took the farming, not just to her school. Every student in her class has to farm in their house and she goes and supervises it and they eat, the family consumes whatever they, they farm in the house farm, in the school farm. Then they go to the community and they sell to make funds for the school. They sell whatever they farm. Oh, here's the lettuce here or spinach here, whatever they farm. And the community has a sense of, of, of compromise and eating what we farm. And instead of going to the supermarkets and the big corporations, they are taking this from the schools and helping the schools be sustainable. So this program that we have in our schools, 44 schools needs to be extended to many more of the schools and we need to take a voice on that. We need to build a project that we submitted to be approved by the legislature and Hurricane Maria hit us in the eye and these schools and the things that they farmed and they are still farming got to feed a lot of communities after the hurricane that nobody talks about, but it has happened. We have pictures, we have videos of 
this amazing work of the agriculture um, teachers in Puerto Rico. Whereas the corporate food system, Daniel, totally failed, right? Um, you know, supermarkets were empty. Puerto Rico imports around 90%, between 80 and 90% of its food, despite being this incredibly fertile island, because so much of the food that is grown there is grown for export. And the- It's nearly all between two ports, one port in Jacksonville and the port of San Juan. Is that right? Exactly. And both of those ports were compromised by these hurricanes, right? In Florida, uh, I think because of Irma, and then um, in, in Puerto Rico by Maria. So you have this highly centralized system that just gets knocked out, right, with a one-two punch of the kinds of storms we're going to see more of. And I, I guess the part that I really want to stress is often when you talk about agroecological methods as a, as a, as a credible a solution to climate change or decentralized renewable energy, people dismiss you as a Luddite, you know, as hippie dippy nonsense, you know, the only thing that can possibly work is, you know, geoengineering and, you know, GMO crops. But when tested in the teeth of these storms, these were the methods that worked and those and, and the corporate systems failed. That is an, a lesson that we need to take. One of the leaders of this movement that, that, that Mercedes is describing of really embedding um, agroecology into the school system and training a new generation of farmers um, is a woman named Dalma Cartagena, who, who I quote in the book and, and, and we featured in a little documentary we made for The Intercept. And Dalma recently said something that really struck me. She said, Maria hit us hard, but it made our convictions stronger. It made us know the correct path. And that really sums up a lot of what you know, I think is happening with people's movements in Puerto Rico, um, where this work was going on before Maria, but because because of what people directly experience with the fact that these solutions actually work, they are the difference, um, you know, between survival and the opposite. There is, you know, a renewed determination to advance them as this as the solution for the island you, you know and that's and I, one thing i just want to mention um about the the book about about the ba battle for paradise that we just put out with haymarket is that a hundred percent of the royalties go to a network of puerto rican um uh, people's movements called junta gente which you know is a lot uh, it represents a lot of the groups we've been talking about coming together in coalition to advance the people's platform all the royalties and the advance go to Junta Gente. That, and that's really why we did the book. Mercedes, but before the hurricane hit, Puerto Rico was in a high state of social movement mobilization. Last spring, there was this massive strike at the Universidad de Puerto Rico, protesting proposed tuition hikes and budget cuts. There was a massive May Day protests. But, but these movements, at the time, these movements, Naomi writes, had seemingly stalled the most draconian austerity plans on the table. But, um, quoting from the book, then came Maria, and all those same rejected policies came roaring back with Category 5 ferocity. Um, Mercedes, tell me about these mobilizations that were underway, what happened when Maria hit, and how, moving forward, what movements are, are, are going to do, given the enormous power of your enemies? Prior to the hurricane, as you stated, there was huge mobilization. Students of the University of Puerto Rico had a strike for 72 days and they won over one of their claims, which was the tuition fees to be increased. So they were able to stop that. But with mobilization, mass mobilization, 
the government had to do something about it. On May 1st, like 80,000 people last year flooded the streets of San Juan, particularly on what is called the gold mile, which is where the bankers are and you know, these corporate companies are protesting against these severe austerity measures. And we're able to stop a lot of them by then. But as I said, repression comes with it. And the governor of Puerto Rico amended the penal code in Puerto Rico, implementing many more, more years of incarceration to people that protest with masks if they do a crime, the people that obstruct um, justice, people that block the streets, people that block the entrance of the schools for the occupations. So they are trying to implement terror so people feel scared to protest. This May 1st was amazing as well. The bank, the banks were shut down. The biggest mall of Puerto Rico was shut down, so they had a lot of losses. The, that's the Plaza Las Americas Mall because they were scared of the people that are furious about this. But police brutality has been implemented against all of those who struggle. And we saw this in May 1st, where tear gas, um, bullet, uh, rubber bullets, and everything. Um, 1,100 cops were sent to the demonstrations of the working class, of the university students, of the Jornada Sagaron Las Promesas, political groups, environmentalist groups, feminists. And they are trying to implement terror, but people are fighting back. Just the day after May 1st this year, May 2nd, a march of the Jornada went to the Condado area where the tourists are. They were being, um, the police were there, air police, horse police, motorized unit, um, ship by sea, everyone was there. So they're trying to implement terror to people. They arrested 17 people, three are still on trial after videos have been shown of them being abused, they are still on trial, uh, and, but that hasn't put a stop to it. We have made an alliance, it's called Pueblo Unido, where environmentalists are there. The people of Punta Gente are gonna join there as well. I just read it about, about that last, last night with Mariolga, she was talking about it in a chat that we have. The organizations, the unions are there, people individually are there to organize and fight back against these measures. We have been arrested for doing civil disobedience, for asking the government to open our schools. But something that's very important is that we are not scared. If they think that they are going to drive us away or scare us because of these policies, these terrorizing policies and the police brutality against the people of Puerto Rico, they are wrong. We have nothing else to lose. They want literally the people of Puerto Rico to die of hunger, to be deprived of their right to an education, a superior education of health services and access to them, environmental policies that benefit the people. They would just want to destroy our lives. So we have nothing else to lose. And we are definitely organizing to fight back. Naomi, briefly. You know, I would just say that I don't think anything has inspired me more than seeing what Puerto Ricans are capable of organizing in the most trying of circumstances, not just resisting, not just saying no to these horrific predatory practices, but with the lights still off and without water and with families being split apart, coming together to say, what do we want instead? And, and, and creating space to dream. 
which as was pointed out to me when I was in Puerto Rico, is exactly what colonization was designed to extinguish, uh, the, the right of people to dream their own future and design their own destiny. And the fact that Puerto Ricans are doing this under such extraordinary circumstances, I think is something we all have to learn from. It's beautiful. Naomi Klein and Mercedes Martinez, thank you both so very much. Thank, thank you, you for this opportunity. Naomi Klein is the author of The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico Takes on the Disaster Capitalists. Mercedes Martinez is president of the Puerto Rican Teachers Federation. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that in epics of crisis, people anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. 